This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. It's nearly a week since Cyclone Gabriel hit New Zealand's North Island and there are still thousands of people who are reported as uncontactable. Anxiety is high as communities struggle without power and essential supplies are disrupted and running low. Australian firefighters are helping with the recovery, searching house by house for those still separated from their families. Kathleen Calderwood filed this report from Hawke's Bay. In the Esk Valley in New Zealand's Hawke's Bay, firefighters are methodically clearing properties. One by one, they pull mud and reeds from car windows, break locks and wrench open boots to ensure there isn't anyone who was stuck inside. We're on site now uh, where an Australian crew actually is um, looking for a potential uh, lost person. So as you can imagine, it's a very challenging task. That's the National Commander of New Zealand Fire and Emergency, Russell Wood. This grim but necessary task is what 25 Australian specialist firefighters who've been deployed to New Zealand to help with the recovery effort are doing. The scale of the disaster is greater than anything the crew's leader, Graham Hall, has seen. I couldn't believe the, how widespread the devastation was from the flood. There's an awful lot of mud and debris and just the loss of um, some of those agricultural properties and um, loss of people's uh, income and, and jobs and, and livelihoods. There's a list of about 30 properties in this area which need to be checked. And as the thick layers of mud dry out, the job becomes even more dangerous with pesticides and bacteria in the dust. Some of the properties we've got to uh, search have got quite a significant amount of asbestos in that. Up the road, there are thick sheets of sediment up to a metre high. Where they've hardened, walking across them is like walking on mudflats at the beach. Elsewhere, they're soft and muddy and easy to sink into. Fruit vines are buried in silt, cars and caravans are sitting upside down and sticking out of the mud, and houses have been shifted hundreds of metres by the floodwaters. At Wendy and Grant Williams's house, a crew of family and local volunteers are shoveling mud off their balcony. Somehow the house is still standing, but their brand new kitchen is ruined and their car is in mud almost as high as the brake lights. It'll be a long road, but we'll get there. They weren't home when the flood came, but their daughter-in-law Dale and their granddaughters were house-sitting. You got a ring from Nick to say that Dale and and the kids are up on the roof and he's got some bad news that there's water all through the house too. So there's a hole where she... Stories like this are emerging across the region and with so much destruction it's hard to imagine just how long this clean-up will take. This is Kathleen Calderwood reporting from the Esk Valley near Napier for AM. What might be the most important piece of climate policy is about to be debated in federal parliament. It's called the safeguard mechanism. The previous coalition government introduced it to limit carbon dioxide emissions by heavy polluters, but it didn't do that. And now the Albanese government wants to change it to put caps in place by July this year. But it needs the Greens to support it. And right now they don't. The party has a long list of concerns. Tom Lowry reports from Parliament House. 
The Albanese government took office promising to end the climate wars. But despite the ambition, it might have a battle on its hands over its signature climate policy. Here's the Greens leader, Adam Bant. Any effective climate policy should bring down pollution from coal and gas. Labor's policy doesn't do that. In fact, it gets worse. The government wants to strengthen the safeguard mechanism, a tool to cap and reduce emissions from the country's heaviest polluting companies. The legislation before Parliament would allow companies covered by the scheme to trade emissions among themselves. The coalition is opposed, so the government will need the Greens to get its bill through Parliament. The Greens' opening bid to wave through the scheme, so long as the government bans new coal and gas projects, has already been knocked back, with the government arguing no one sector should be singled out. So the question is now what else the government might be willing to offer to get the bill through. Labor's position of indefinite, unlimited offsets uh, is just not acceptable. Gavin McFadgen from the Australian Conservation Foundation says one option the Greens could pursue is limiting or scaling down over time the use of carbon credits within the scheme. Under the current rules, businesses can choose to cut their emissions or simply buy as many credits as they need to offset them. We think that offsets play an important role in emissions reduction, but there's no substitute for removing emissions at the site level, at the operational level, at the business level. We can't simply offset our way to net zero without making deep reductions over time in our own emissions. Tenant Reid is from the Australian Industry Group. He says some barriers around carbon credits might make sense, but urges caution. We'd be looking for some nuance in whatever is agreed and not hard bars on using offsets at all. Or even simple numerical caps are, are probably not a great idea. While the government has ruled out a ban on new coal and gas projects, Gavin McFadgen says another option is to make approving them a little harder. If the government was to go down the angle of a climate trigger, that would mean that projects over a certain emissions level would then be assessed under our national environment laws. He says a trigger is not necessarily a ban on new coal and gas. It just means their emissions are factored in during the approval process. Whether it rules out all new coal and gas projects by default would depend on where the baseline for the assessment of those projects is set. Tenant Reid says the most important outcome is an outcome itself. I don't think anybody wants all this to fall over. And we would all be worse off if it did. The Australian Industry Group's Tenant Reid ending that report from Tom Lowry. How much do you know about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament? Supporters are currently running a week of action to talk about the voice in the referendum later this year. A voice to Parliament would be a permanent body representing First Nations people advising government on policies and laws which affect their lives. The action coincides with a start a yarn campaign developed by the architects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Professor Megan Davis, a cobble cobble woman, is part of this group and co-author of the statement. She joined me earlier. The start a yarn um, that we're doing for the week of action is a series of online kind of yarning circles that we are offering to Australians. The kind of purpose of them is that many Australians are coming into this year having not known much about Uluru or the voice to parliament and we wanted to provide a space where they could hear about the work of the dialogues that led to the issuing of the Uluru Statement and the voice to parliament and hear about the Uluru Statement 
and just be able to anchor the conversation that's being had now in that kind of 12-year constitutional recognition process that has happened in this country since 2010, 2011. So that's the purpose of the Start of Yarns. We released uh, a large series of them for the Week of Action and they were all um, registered for and oversubscribed within an hour or so. So there's definitely a first um, out there, you know, in the Australian community to learn more about the, the referendum this year. And by focusing on a grassroots campaign like this, you're, you're bypassing politicians. Do you fear that the retail politics will erode public support for The Voice and end up in a majority no vote? I think that we always predicted that at some point retail Australian politics would try and take over this process. When we were out at The Rock after 13 dialogues of the National Convention, there was a lot of wisdom from our elders and cultural authorities that we needed to issue the Uluru Statement from the heart to the Australian people because it is the Australian people who change the constitution of which, of course, we as First Nations are a part of. We felt that if we issued it to the Australian people, we could have that conversation directly with the Australian people given that it's virtually impossible to get major reform in the space of Indigenous affairs in, at least back then, the kind of parliament that, you know, always reduced Aboriginal affairs to an ideological football. What I think we've seen in the past couple of months is that reversion to what I call retail Australian politics, and that is a lot of bickering, a lot of politicking about the referendum and the future of First Nations in Australia. Um, but it's not so much, uh, you know, a view to the future as as we have thought about in the context of that work that's happened for 12 years in this country, but politicians prepping for the next election. And that kind of short-term view is something that has fed the kinds of indicators that you see in in Indigenous affairs where, you know, we live from three years to three years to three years to three years with very, very little change. I think most Australians can see that the status quo isn't working and the voice to parliament is a really pragmatic idea from communities about something that will actually have a transformative impact to the way in which communities are treated because it requires the state to involve us in the formulation and the design of laws and policies about our lives. And most Aussies are shocked to know or not shocked to know that actually right now it's bureaucrats and and politicians who don't live in these communities that dictate those laws and policies and we're not at the table. And that's why you're seeing so much waste in um, not just public money, um, but really poor outcomes in terms of their laws and policies. The federal Liberal leader, Peter Dutton, says a lack of detail worries him and he's still undecided about whether to support a yes vote. And he also says he thinks this is on track to fail. Have you talked with him about those sentiments? How could you Uh, persuade him? Look, I mean, the detail thing, I think, when we started this and when this kicked off in 2017 post Uluru, what was in our minds was conventional constitutional processes, right? That is to say, you know, Australians vote on 
principle because that's what the constitution is. So the constitution is for principles. And in this case, we're asking Australians to vote on the norm that the state has to involve us in laws and policies that are made about our lives, that it doesn't veto those decisions or the parliament, but it will strengthen almost certainly that work, the quality of the outcomes of our laws and policies if we're at the table. You know, we're asking Australians to, to vote on that principle and the principle and Australians voting yes opens the door to the parliament doing what is their day-to-day job, their bread and butter job, and that is developing the legislation that will set up the voice. So constitution for principle and the detail for the parliament, that's what we had in mind because that's the nature of how the Australian constitution works. It's like the High Court was set up when the constitution came into force in 1901. It recognised the High Court of Australia as a principle, but it wasn't actually created in legislation until several years later. This is how the constitution functions. We, at the time, knew that you would need some detail for Australians to make an informed decision. And so that is the work that Prime Minister Albanese has had underway. It's inexplicable to me why people keep saying he's withholding detail or he's being deceptive when in September 2022 he set up three committees um, who have all been working about putting the detail together on the referendum. And those committees report in the next month. So, you know, I'm on uh, several of those and we've been working really, really hard. So I do not understand the, the kind of suggestion that he's somehow been withholding detail when actually he's done something that would be kind of alien in some ways to the coalition, and that is um, do consultation with First Nations people before they make decisions. So that detail is underway, and there will be that detail released before the referendum. But what we don't want, we don't want Australians to vote on Model A or Model B. We're not going to stand up a fully-fledged model, um, and that's because um, we want Australians to vote on the principle because the model might change. We don't want Australians voting on you know, Model A and then in 2052 we need an entirely different thing. The whole purpose of having some information passed so that Australians can vote in an informed way and then the bulk of that detail is left to Parliament... Professor Davis, thanks for talking to us this morning. Thanks for having me. That's a campaigner for a voice to Parliament, Professor Megan Davis. As the World Pride Festival kicks off in Sydney, advocates are demanding Australia do more to stop LGBTIQ plus human rights violations across Asia and the Pacific. Advocates say Australia has an obligation to do more, as Stephanie Smale reports. Trans man Henry Say lives and works as a lawyer in Hong Kong. Until recently, if he wanted his official identity card to say he's a man, full sex reassignment surgery was needed. He fought that rule all the way to Hong Kong's top court and won. But he explains not everyone feels they can refuse to have the often painful procedure, including one of his friends. Constant pain in the lower area when they when they sit on the chair, they couldn't feel anything because their nerves have been damaged. Henry Say says that's just one of a long list of human rights violations trans people in Hong Kong are suffering. They're not protected at all at the workplace. They've been fired, they're banned from using the bathroom that, that matches with their acquired gender. There's nothing based on gender identity legally that we can uh, have a ground to, to seek legal remedy. 
Henry Tsai says many LGBTIQ plus advocacy groups are struggling to help those who need it. There's a huge funding gap in Hong Kong and I find that it very difficult for me to, you know, actually to start some advocacy project to raise awareness of problems of this kind in the past few years. Advocacy groups from Asia and the Pacific have joined forces with Australian groups to call on the federal government to do more. Ryan Silverio is the executive director of the ASEAN Soji Caucus and will be at World Pride's Human Rights Conference next week. He says support networks in Southeast Asia are being forced to rely on short-term funding to provide life-saving services. It's a first aid support system for many LGBTI persons, especially those who are kicked out from the families or communities. Access to shelter, can they be referred to mental health professionals, amongst others. So empowering local organizations is not just for advocacy purposes, it's also about providing direct services for the community. Ryan Silverio argues an ongoing commitment of 15 million Australian dollars a year could change a lot of people's lives but we need resources so that the groups who are actually dealing with the actions on the ground will have the necessary fuel for that. In a statement, a spokeswoman for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says the new human rights ambassador will be working to promote human rights globally, including for the LGBTIQ plus community. Stephanie Smale reporting. On the outskirts of Australia's most expensive housing market, families are buying into the Australian dream. Many are migrants lured to Sydney's newest suburbs on a promise of a brighter future for their children. But for some, it's come with a catch. Rani Heyman reports. Hey, guys, what do the porcupines say to the cactus? It's an idyllic scene. Children riding their bikes down a quiet street. New houses filled with families on one side, masses of green space to the other. I'm 80. (laughs) But the reality of life in Marsden Park, a new development 50 kilometres from Sydney's CBD, isn't so rosy for the parents of these children. We knew that when they build a new high school in the new area, you're going to get the good education. Alpesh Pawar bought a home in Marsden Park based on a 2019 pre-election state government promise to build a new high school. Four years on and less than five weeks out from the next state election, the site chosen for the school remains empty. The suburb does have a new Catholic high school, so Mr Poir is sending his son there, but it's come at a cost. It wasn't painful first year, too much, but this year definitely after increasement of interest rate. The government says the new high school and a new primary school will be built by 2025. Labor says it will open the doors of the high school only next year. These growing pains in Sydney's fringe seats are likely to impact the outcome at the New South Wales state election, which is less than five weeks away. The coalition Liberal National Government, led by Premier Dominic Perrottet, is already in minority. So Labor, led by Chris Minns, needs to win nine nine seats to form a majority. Tom Nance from Western Sydney University says many residents buying in places like Marsden Park weren't prepared. The infrastructure delivery that the private uh, developers are charged with, such as you know shopping centres, McDonald's, things like that, outpacing some of the other essential infrastructure delivery like schools and transport. As the state election looms, the message from these voters to both sides of politics is that promises matter. 
Rani Heyman reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. It's a year since Vladimir Putin started the war in Ukraine, a war that's taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, rocked security in Europe and shocked the global economy. Today, an update on where the war stands 12 months in and what to expect in the weeks ahead. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.